Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Darlene Green. She has a background in the Navy and the technology sector, along with leadership experience and lots of good real world experience, but she's also overcome uh, and has had a lot of resilience in her life. So I'm happy to have Darlene here to share more about her story and what she's got going on. So thank you so much, Darlene. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Thank you, Sarah. So I am a Navy commander, uh, retired after 20 years. Uh, I had uh, the opportunity in the Navy to have three commanding officer tours. My last one, I was over 1,200 people. We can kind of come back to that uh, in a bit. I also was a vice president for a strategic technology partner in McAfee, which was bought by Intel while I was there. Um, I went from there to become the dean of a boarding school, (laughs) dean of Culver Girls Academy. Uh, My daughters wanted to go to this amazing school, uh, Culver Girls Academy, which was in Indiana, really in the middle of nowhere. And I left my job at McAfee and moved to a town of 1200 and had no idea what I was going to do there. But they weren't getting away from me that far. Like, you're not going to a boarding school in high school and not have mommy right there. So I uh, I ended up becoming their dean. They were, they were not that happy about that, actually. <laughs> but that was a, a leadership school and a great... And, you know, one of the great things about about the military is that your leadership, you, you do so many different jobs and leadership is leadership no matter who you're leading and what you're leading. So that was great. And then my next job was the current, as what I currently have been doing for six years as the director of client services for high tech networks and security. Um, a great job. I oversee the program management office and project managers. And uh, more recently, then uh, I've become a senior director for LifeWave. They are um, in the latest technology for photobiomodulation and got into that to elevate people's. GHKCU and help them activate their stem cells and reverse age and get out of pain and repair DNA and kind of got into that because of my husband's Alzheimer's. So we can, we can speak to that a lot, a lot later, but where would you like to begin? <laughs> yeah, you definitely have this great career. Um, I'd be curious to have you kind of start, I guess, probably at the beginning, being a commander in the Navy, um, being a woman in the Navy and kind of share some experiences there. Well, my, uh, my second commanding officer job in the Navy was, was in orange, Texas. Uh, and that's a really small town in the Southeast part of Texas. And it was very interesting. I didn't know when I went there in 2000, that I was the first woman commanding officer of this base. And it was a 16 acre base. And we had warehouses that made, the ships uh, long ago. So we had a pier and, you know, big Mexican warships would come in and we had landing craft and lathes and things that could cut people's fingers off and carpentry shops and all sorts of um, fun equipment that the reservists could train on and prepare to go. Uh, Our job was getting them trained and ready administratively, medically, in in all cases, in all capacities to go deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever the world needed them. Well, I arrived and did not know that I was the first woman, but boy, did they. And it was a very big deal. 
Um, and it was a little bit of a problem because I had, for example, this one judge who was a reservist, um, he walked up to me. We were both in uniform in the middle of a work day. And to say hello, he just kissed me on the mouth. And I was like, whoa, wait, what are you doing? You can't just kiss me. And he's like, I'm just so happy to see you. And I said, well, let me introduce you to the handshake. And he said, no, I'm really happy to see you. And I said, let me introduce you to the double handshake. You know, you do one hand like this and you put the other hand on top and then I'll really know. And I said, you can't be kissing the women in the command either. So he was like, okay, okay. So I was uh, struggling a little bit because I needed to figure out a way quickly to earn the respect of these men who were not used to having women in charge and not necessarily liking it, but also um, were were just, this was just really an eye-opener for them. So one of the things that just popped out of my mouth before I even thought about it one day was I challenged everybody in my command, and there were probably about 120 people in this in this command, to a competition in physical fitness. We did a physical fitness test twice a year, and I told them push up for push up, sit up for sit up. I challenge you all. If you if you beat me, then I will present you with the soda of your choice <laughs> in front of everybody. Like it was all for fun, right? But it was to motivate them to start getting ready and exercising, and and I was um, determined. So. I I had just had my second baby. I had a C-section. I hadn't done a sit-up when I when I blurted this out. <laughs> so I began training uh, early mornings. I would do the physical fitness test twice every single day in preparation for this event. And uh, when we got to the day of, it was everybody was super jazzed and excited. So if it did nothing else, it was a huge camaraderie factor. And so I had this uh, this maybe sailor who wanted to go become a Navy SEAL. He was on his way to BUDS training, which is the first step. And he ran over to me right after we did the push-ups and said, ma'am, I did 126 push-ups. How many did you do? And he just knew he had beat me. And I turned to the counter and said, how, how many did I do? And he turned to him and he goes, man, she did 127 push-ups. He's like, no way. And he goes, yes, I counted every one of them. And I think I did 136 sit-ups and I ended up beating everyone in push-ups and sit-ups, but I had one person who did a run time faster than my swim time and it was a woman. Yes! So that was really fun. I got to present her with a soda. Um, that was a really special tour because I, I just really fell in love with the people. They, they took to me, it took, you know, it was, it was wonderful. They presented me with the key to the city, um, actually the city of Orange and the city of Lake Charles, Louisiana, both I got, and then my wardroom, which is the group of officers, uh, they presented me with my first sword and, uh, the sword they said when they presented it to me at my change of command, when I was leaving was they said, this is symbolic. And what it means is we will follow you into battle anywhere. So that is probably the best gift I've ever had. It was really moving and, and, and really neat. So that's a little story about uh, that command. The other command I would tell you about was my last commanding officer position. It was over 1,200 people, 800 Navy and 400 uh, Marines. And it was here in Arizona where I live. And we had, uh, we had probably been deploying about 30% of our team you know, year to year to go to Afghanistan at this point. And 
one of the things that I had been through in my past, I, uh, we sort of were talking in the green room. I had really bad decision-making in marriage <laughs> marriages. My first husband, my second husband were both truly problematic. Uh, the first one was abusive emotionally and physically and got out of that as, as quickly as I could. And the second one was, um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder and also narcissistic personality disorder. And that is a really, really hard combination, um, was, was tough. And the, the, it was actually that experience plus the courtroom battle that we went through to help protect uh, my daughters. I won't get into all the details cause that's their story, but I will say it was very traumatic. And I ended up with PTSD as a result of the trauma of the courtroom and my ex and the situation and trying to protect them. And so I had learned a lot of stress management techniques. I learned I had to put my oxygen mask on first or I wouldn't be able to take care of my daughters. I learned, uh, you know, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is great for therapy, uh, a, a ton of stuff. But what I also think I learned was to see pain. I don't think before I went through my own trauma that I was even able to see pain in others. I'm not sure I looked for it either. But uh, when I was sitting with these sailors that were coming back from Afghanistan and their spouses, I saw it and I could see that they were hurting. I could see that there was a problem and that we needed to do something to help them. And we really didn't have anything in place to support them. So imagine you drop your civilian job and sometimes with just a week or two weeks notice, you leave your spouse for one year, you go overseas and you get, you know, not with any of the people that you've been training with, not with your unit, you go as an individual and you get dropped plunk into the middle of another unit. And then you get plucked right back out and you drop back into your civilian world and your spouse and your, and your training command again. And uh, this was really hard and it happens fast. Like, it's not like you're spending months on a ship with people. It's like 24 hours, you're in the war zone and then boom, you know, you're back in civilization. So what I found was uh, their, their marriages were not doing very well they, and they were very honest about that. And their uh, people really opened up to me. I was really surprised by how much they were willing to say, but you could see the pain and you could tell we needed to do something. So, I mean, no one had even said, thank you. There was no ticker tape parade. There was nothing. So what we started to do was initially look for a program that we could steal and say, okay, let's supply this here. But every single program worldwide was based on units that went over and came back. So I stood in front of probably four or 500 reservists one weekend. And I said, look, we need to do a better job of taking care of you as you return and your families. And I'd like to build a program that does that. I have no idea what it needs to look like or what it needs to be, but I bet you do. And I bet with your help, we could build something great. And so if you're interested, come see me. Let's talk to, Let's talk about your skill set and how you want to contribute. And let's do this. It would all be on extra time. This isn't going to be part of your Navy, uh, Navy time. So it's just extra. But, you know, if you want to do it, we'll do it. Well, I got a lot of volunteers and we categorized them and we had chaplains and nurses and doctors and uh, you know, people great with Excel spreadsheets and all sorts of things. We just captured any of their talents and we began uh, researching what they needed and what we needed to build for them. And because there were no programs anywhere to steal, we ended up creating our own curriculum and we ended up uh, having facilitators established. And we built this program called the Returning Warrior Weekend Workshop. 
And in that workshop, we helped, we had the spouse and the member, and we had them away for the weekend. And we got them talking about their experience, both of them. And what we found was that most of the sailors and warriors, they'd never talked about it at all. They, they also thought they were completely unique and alone and that nobody else was experiencing the same kind of PTSD symptoms that they were or the issues that they were or the marital issues that they were. In fact, one of the things that I remember vividly was they all wanted to go back. And the spouses were going crazy about that. You know, what do you mean you want to go back? You just got here. You've been gone a year. I've been holding down the fort, taking care of the kids, doing everything. And now you're telling me you want to go back. And that was, that was hard. And so what happened is uh, when we had all of them in a small group session and asked like, how many of you want to go back? And they all raised their hand. The spouses looked and said, okay, this is not about me. And this is not about my marriage. There's something bigger going on. And then we had an opportunity to have a facilitator explain what was behind that. Um, and we had big group uh, discussions and keynote speakers that talked about transformational growth, as well as just PTSD symptoms and, um, you know, what it's like to go through the cleansing process from war to reintegrate into the civilian society and how we've been doing that since the Greeks and the Trojans. So uh, this Return Aware weekend, we, we actually measured people's wellness beforehand and then at the end of it, and then three months later, and 100% said that it had made a huge difference for them and that they recommended others, others do this. So we were doing this for my group of people in Arizona, and my boss said, hey, I want you to take this throughout the Southwest. Well, it's one thing to build a program. You have all your people, you have all your facilitators, you have all of your speakers. You can do this multiple times right here, but now to spread it around, that was a, a lot different. So we figured that out and then they wanted to spread it throughout the nation. Uh, I retired right about then and uh, they actually called me back on active duty orders about a year after I retired and said, explain to the Marine Corps why we do this the way we did this and they want to build their own program and you know all of this. So we, we, I did that, but uh, we, uh, I will, I'm proud to tell you that this program is still in existence 17 years later and it's protected by yellow ribbon panel uh, funding. And I, and that last one that I did most of the time, they never knew I had, I mean, they knew I was emceeing it and master of ceremonies, but they didn't know my role in the, in the whole thing. But in the very last one, as I was retiring, they presented me with a medal and they talked about what I'd done. And the, um, the feedback, you know, I had these Navy chiefs that were salty and rugged and they came up with tears in their eyes and they said, you know, you saved my marriage or you saved my life. So uh, that was the most intrinsically rewarding job I will probably ever have. And, uh, and I will tell you, it was, it was hard, exhausting, emotionally. I put everything I had into it and then some, and, and I was ready to sort of leave it behind because of, I think my own exhaustion, um, from their trauma, like there, you know, I would listen to stories that would just break my heart. So I, I'm glad that it continues. And I'm, and I, it was time for me to sort of roll out of it because I just needed the emotional break. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was my last job in the Navy. Yeah. I mean, to hear from where you started and kind of the misogyny that you were experiencing from being the first woman at that one command, then building up this program and hearing, you know, people being honest and open with you and like, 
retiring was probably the right move at that time, but the program still lives on. People are still able to, you know, embrace that sort of work. Um, I am curious if you're willing to share, like, what got you into the Navy and why you joined? Sure. So I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> I thought the women in, in flight suits were like the coolest thing on the planet. Uh, that just looked really cool and sort of badass to me. So I, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but then I, um, <laughs> but then I fell in love with my first husband. That was a mistake, but I did fall in love and I, I, he was surface warfare officer and those two were not compatible, like being a, a fighter pilot and being in surface warfare. So I fairly quickly switched away from that and then did shore station management and, and, and actually, um, very much enjoyed that. I, I had, in my day, you didn't have to go to sea. Uh, you know, I have a daughter that went to the Naval Academy and is in the Navy. And I have another daughter who went to the Air Force Academy and is in the Air Force. And we have two sons, one that is going through Navy flight school right now and another son that was a Marine. So the whole, you know, my husband, current husband was uh, in the Navy 30 years uh, naval aviator and my dad was 30 years air force so we are very surrounded by military there's a bit of a legacy for us because i think that there's um there's a service that you give and you get something back for life that that you will always be proud of the time that you served and you get a work ethic that is unparalleled uh and you get a feeling of family that you carry with for the your whole life there's there's never a time when I don't meet any military member anywhere at any place and not feel like they're family. And so with your children, you know, they're also, you know, have gone through some trainings, gone into service. Was there ever any like pushback from any of them that they didn't want to do that, but felt an obligation? Or was it kind of like you where you're like, this you know, thing looks so cool that I want to do that? They had their, they had a choice. I think there probably was from their perspective, they felt unspoken pressure. Um, I, I, they've been willing to voice that now. Uh, they did have an opportunity uh, to go to, you know, I told them, you are responsible for your tuition for college. I paid for this very expensive private boarding school for high school. So you're gonna be on your own for college, figure it out and you can't walk away with a big loan. So you have an opportunity to, they could go to any California state school through a program for veterans there where they just needed to get in the state school. And that was any of them in UCLA, any of them that, um, that their tuition would be covered. And I tell, I told them I would take care of room and board. Uh, so they had a civilian option that they could choose from the, the time when I think, uh, my, I don't, I wouldn't say that my daughter in the Navy ever regretted the Naval Academy. Uh, but it was very hard. And my daughter in the air force, <laughs> was uh, in the Air Force Academy, I think there was her first year she she called and she said, what am I doing here? All of my friends are at the beach and they're partying and they're doing this and they're doing that. And I don't, I don't really understand what I'm doing here. This is really hard. I don't really fit in here. They're not very nice. You know, there's just all of this, right? And I said, well, honey, you're comparing yourself to the wrong group of people because you're comparing yourself to these people who are getting their education paid for by their parents and their parents are willing to let them go to this beach school and they're, they're you know, missing class and going to parties all day. What you need to compare yourself to is the working person that's trying to figure out how to make it through college while getting a job and putting food on the table and having a roof over their head. And that would be your choice. You know, you've already made your decision. 
So you can leave, but you need to know you're not coming home. You're going to be uh, on the street uh, figuring out how to put a roof over your head and put food on the table and work while you figure out your college degree. And she said, oh, well, (laughs) I guess... I guess they do put a roof over my head and feed me here and they are paying for my college. And so her whole mind search, you know, it was sort of like, you're not coming home. So if you think that this, there's an easy ticket out of here, no. So I, I think it was probably her first academy graduation ceremony that she saw where she went, wow, I want to be that proud. I want to, I want to get this done and do all of this. Uh, and then she, I think was glad. But no, the boys actually, um, they thrived in it. They did really well. And actually, Katie, they, you know, they, they, it's not an easy job, um, but most people don't regret the time that they've served. They regret having gotten out. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, the leadership that being in the service, you know, brought through and it, you know, led you to the careers that you've had post retirement in the service. So can you take us a little bit, if you want to talk about the job at McAfee, like you can but then also like, you know, becoming a dean of the private school that your daughters were at, kind of like what the experiences that led to that, because it seems like very three very different career paths. They really are very different. Uh, they are. So when I, when I was um, looking for, I, I was actually in a job uh, after the Navy and technology and overseeing network architects, engineers, and project managers. And, um, I was not very happy with my boss and it was actually my husband who said, you know, you can quit, right? (laughs) Because it never dawned on me, you know, in the military, you don't quit. So this was my first job out of the military. And I was like, I could quit. So I had quit my job and was looking for the next thing. And this is just, this is just sort of a story to inspire all the women out there who think they have to check every single box before they apply for a job and you have to have it all nailed down before you even go in for an interview. I had this, um, there was a position at McAfee. Fortunately, I hadn't seen the criteria because if I had, I probably would not have applied. So this is a little bit backing into it, but I had someone who said, who worked there, who said, you would be great for this position that we have because it's all about customer service processes and uh, leadership and communication. It's just like, it's in your wheelhouse. And I said, oh, great. So I, I was, uh, I sent in my resume and I got a call from the HR officer. And this was the worst interview that's ever happened in the history of interviews, I think, because she said to me, so Darlene, I see that you live in Arizona. Yes. So if you got the job, would you move to Santa Clara, uh, California or to Plano, Texas? And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not moving. She's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I I was told I could do this job remotely potentially. And she's like, well, I don't know. Um, You know, why won't you move? And I said, well, my parents have lived in Alaska 27 years. I'm finally, you know, I'm just in a place stable where they're getting to beat. My kids are around their grandparents. And this is real important to me. She's like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know about that. And then she said, well, so tell me, do you have 15 years of architectural engineering experience? And I said, oh, no. And she said, do you have uh, you know, a strong CRM and SAS background? I'm like Googling, what do these words even mean? <laughs> I'm like, no. She asked me seven questions, Sarah, and I could not answer yes to any of them. It was no, 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 no. My, my husband's in the background smirking because, you know, he's listening to this interview and thinking this, there is no way you're getting this job. No way. 
uh, she said, I'm going to send you the, the actual job description. Um, because I, you know, you have a very impressive resume. Don't get me wrong, but I just don't see you as a fit for this job. And I said, well, I understand what you're saying. You're describing a job that doesn't sound like at all, like the one that was described for me. So a couple, I get off the phone and my husband says, there's no way you'll ever get that job. And I said, well, I just, it's so different than what I was hearing it was. So, but I got a call from the HR officer a couple of weeks later and she said, CIO wants to talk with you. He wants to do an interview. So everybody else is doing in-person interviews, but I'm not flying you here for an in-person interview. So I'm going to give you 30 minutes on the telephone. And she was so mad about even having, apparently there had been two weeks of the CIO saying, the chief information officer saying, I want to interview her. And the HR officer saying, no, she meets none of the criteria. She won't even move here. No, no, no. And he's like, get her on an interview. So anyway, I get the interview with him. I go through, it's a, it's a, I do a pretty darn good job. I prepared really well. I knew what their weaknesses were. I knew how to fold my experience into it. And at the end of the call, he said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yes, I do. How do you see me as a fit for this job? And he said, you know, I have to tell you when I, when I looked at your resume, I really wasn't sure. But as I think about it, my issues are not in engineering or architecture my issues are leadership and communication and process and all of the things that you are so good at. And I would really like it if you would continue to interview for the job. And so over time, you know, we, we go, I go into the back to back to back interviews where I literally had, I think eight hours of interviews with other vice presidents back to back. And every one of them was looking at my resume and looking at the job description and they're going, huh? You know, <laughs> so I get through that and, uh, I, then I'm going, then I'm going to another interview with, uh, to another customer site. And I'm finally kind of in the final interview with the chief financial officer and, um, the, the, uh, the boss, uh, the CIO says, so if you talk salary with the HR officer and I said, no. And he says, well, do you know what the range is? And I said, I, I really don't. And uh, so what he, what he described was substantially higher than what I was making at the time. And I was like, well, I could, I could do the upper end of that in my best poker face. My dad would be so proud of me. And, uh, and he said, well, I'll see what I can do. So then later when I got approval and everybody said, yes, we want to hire Darlene, uh, he says to me, I couldn't get you that top end because we're in California and you're in Arizona and just the cost of living is so different. So don't tell anybody, but ask for a sign-on bonus. I said, okay, I won't tell anybody. So this is cone of silence, everybody, cone of silence. So anyway, I go and I'm sitting with this HR officer across the table from her. And I said to her, you know, she's having reluctantly offering me the job and walking through the description of, of all of the details of it. And, and um, I said, by the way, I would really like a signing bonus. <laughs> she literally spit coke through her nose. She just like choked and, and just like lost it. And she's like, you know, I know what you're making, right? And I said, yes. She goes, well, what makes you think you deserve a sign-on bonus? And I said, because I have a different job offer that matches yours and it has a sign-on bonus. And it's not really about what I'm making now. It's about my competitive worth. So anyway, I got the sign-on bonus. And a year after being hired, the CIO told me that hiring me was the best decision that he made. And I ended up thriving in the job. And it was, it was all software, something I had never really done before. Uh, they changed the job description before hiring me just so that they could have it match with my skill set. 
So that's a funny story. So that's the vice president of McAfee. I won't go into that too much, but suffice it to say, it was a very hard decision to leave that because I felt like I was at the top of my game. I was doing great. I was really enjoying the job. Uh, I, I felt like I was doing it really well. I was getting great uh, feedback. And my uh, daughters want to go to this boarding school and my husband wants them to go to this boarding school. It's just this famous Culver Girls Academy and there's a Culver Military Academy and it's just this amazing school. They are, it's beautiful and it's on a lake and the, uh, the academics are phenomenal and just so much is phenomenal. And I cried and cried and cried. And I would, I would cry to my husband and say, tell me again how great the school is because I would, I would basically not be able to do my job there. I, I, I was getting on a plane and traveling, you know, from, from the Phoenix airport to Santa Clara Plano was super easy, but from the middle, you know, two hours or three hours or four hours from Chicago or Indianapolis was not an option for traveling. So, so I got there and I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, my husband was going to work for the school. The girls were in school. I was like, well, I could, you know, I can bake cookies. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to do as a stay-at-home mom, but let's figure it out. Um, I had a shoulder surgery in that time frame, And somewhere along the way, the dean of the Culver Girls Academy position came open. And I was like, I could do that. And my husband's like, Darlene, I am seeing, now he's, he's also the one that heard me listen, listen to the McAfee job and said, there's no way you're getting that job. Right. So he's, he says, I'm seeing the, the resumes coming in. They're PhDs. They've been boarding school deans for this school and that school. I, I, I love you, but there's no way you're getting this job. And I said, well, you said that before. So I interviewed for it. And because it's a leadership school, I think is, I think that was really my in is that I had such a strong leadership background and one of the things that I was able to convey was it's really not enough to have the kids, the, you know, learn academically what leadership is. Your team, your staff, the the counselors in the dorms, the dorm moms, they need to demonstrate and model leadership in all of their actions if you really want the girls to learn this and have it be reinforced. Anyway, I got the job. And I really did enjoy the job. And I, and I, I, I felt like I did it really well. Uh, and I, I, but I will tell you this, just like that returning weekend program took everything out of me um, emotionally, so did the Dean job. It was the most emotionally exhausting job because the girls were like my children. They were, you know, 350 daughters that were my girls and I needed to go to all of their sporting events and all their academic things and all of the stuff. And so when one of my two daughters said, I need a new toothbrush, I'm like, go check out the bookstore. <laughs> like, You got that. So it was really um, hard because I didn't have enough time to, to do that job the way I thought it needed to be done and to be a mom and a wife. Um, so I think it, I think in the end it was better for me um, to not do that job. So I, I shifted from that job and ended up doing consulting uh, from Indiana for uh, until my youngest daughter was ready to graduate. And then I went to um, the, into the current position that I have. Great. I think it's awesome to hear how your leadership has just pulled so much into these jobs that you've had and like defying expectations of can you fit <laughs> into this job? You know, not you know, taking the chance and saying like, I have transferable skills. I might not have 100% every single thing that you're looking for, but with the job, the way it's written, you know, this, this might work for me. Yeah. Now you've mentioned, you know, poor choices in husbands and your current husband being a great one. 
but that he does have Alzheimer's. So what is it like to, you know, kind of if you're a caregiver for him or when that sort of started, you know, mm-hmm. you're just kind of that health experience that you two have. So, uh, Yes, I did finally get it right. This was, you know, he was really a, a, a gift and from the angels, I think, for for all that I had endured before. And I don't know that there's a better man on the planet uh, than my husband. He's just a beautiful human being, very inspiring. Um, about, I'd say, three years ago, uh, we noticed that he was having some memory issues, some task processing issues, and and the and the decline became pretty steep. Uh, it started as, you know, just not remembering entire conversations to, I don't know which remote control to use for the Apple TV versus the direct TV. And he was the tech geek in the house. I mean, even though I worked in technology all these years, he was really the tech geek. So that was problematic. And when I asked him, you know, do you think you're experiencing some memory issues? He said, yes, but you know, there's nothing we can do about it. And there's, you know, no reason to really look into that. And I said, well, it could be a tumor. So yeah, I think we should look into it. So we did, um, we did look into it. And what was interesting was how long it actually took to get the diagnosis because, you know, um, Alzheimer's is one of those things that they say they can only really a hundred percent state that you have it at your autopsy. Um, we don't want that. So, uh, what we also found in the process, I, I did a lot of research and, one of the things I came upon was Dr. Bredesen's protocol. And Dr. Bredesen is the only one I know of that's actually reversing Alzheimer's. And, and when you look at his data, he talks about sort of, I think it's a 36 whole roof that every one of these things is important to patch to keep the rain from coming in and have the Alzheimer's progress. But the biggest two that he sees in 70 to 80% of the time is mold and insulin resistance. So we got tested for mold. Both of us have mold, probably from Navy ships, Navy office buildings, you know, who knows. Um, and getting rid of mold is no easy thing, but mold can actually present like dementia. So for a long time, I was like, well, does he really have Alzheimer's or is it just the mold presenting like dementia? But we ended up getting a spinal tap done and that ended up confirming and also additional MRIs that confirmed that he did have Alzheimer's. And over, over that time frame, you know, we worked really hard to try to do all the things that were possible from the diet was the first thing that Dr. Bredesen, you know, we threw out alcohol, we threw out soda, we threw out white sugar, we threw out white flour, we threw out any kind of, any kind of oil that's not like extra virgin olive oil or coconut oil or avocado oil. Uh, we made sure that there were, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished, no genetically modified foods. Anything that had toxins wasn't that would go to the brain, we took out. And um, in fact, we have this saying, Sarah, if it, if it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> that's, that's not really true, but that's kind of how we felt for a long time. Um, so anyway, we, 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 um, I, when I looked at the research, the, the drugs that were available are really not good. In fact, even the most recent drug that came out for Alzheimer's uh, causes brain bleeds in 50% of people with my husband's APOE44 type. So that was not an option. So we went looking for, um, in my research, the thing that kept coming up was stem cells. And so we went out of country and we went to go get IV stem cells four times in a year. And uh, we had injections. And I mean, these were expensive. And I actually got them too, because I have three different autoimmune disorders that I 
that I think my ex-husband's for. <laughs> part of my part of my growth. And uh, anyway, I wanted to get rid of some of that as well. So we just didn't see any results. Uh, we tried hyperbaric chamber, uh, which is supposed to really help the brain a lot, but I actually think it made things worse. We did that three times a, a week for a month. We did ozone therapy with blood spinning ozone therapy, which is also great for mold. Um, we did hydrogen water. Uh, we did daily strength training and uh, high intensity training. We worked on a sleep protocol because that's when the brain kind of uh, leaves you know, the, the deep sleep is when it cleanses and all the bad toxins come out. So we worked on that and we really just weren't, um, we weren't seeing any results. We, we, uh, we were at a place in time where he was napping three and a half hours a day, um, which is a long time, you know, at a three and a half hour nap, you're in there checking them to see if they're breathing. Are you alive still? Um, and then falling asleep about seven o'clock at night, he was completely disengaged from conversations uh, it was just too challenging for him. And he was asking the same questions over and over again, which you asked, how is this for you as a care provider? Really, really hard. Um, it's really hard to take care of a grown adult in a way when they're acting kind of like a toddler, but they didn't used to be. It's not like he always didn't have these skills. He It's it's just this decline where I have to pick out his clothing. I have to remind him to, to brush his teeth or, or shower or take a bath or um, you know, he can't, um, you know, even just putting on a sweatshirt and a shirt, he, you almost have to tell him which goes first. Like we're really get a, get a, can you make me a glass of ice water? No, he can't like, that's too hard. So, um, hard in terms of the fact that you now have to do everything around the house, everything, um, how, when, you know, how often do you change filters and air filters and how do you do the water softener and the things that he always used to do? I had to get smart on really quickly. We had to certainly work on getting all the finances straight. Um, and that was certainly not easy uh, because he had managed all that. So I had to take all that over and we had to get it, get it into a place that was protected so that he didn't accidentally uh, do something crazy with it. Um, and, and I was finally coming to terms. I actually, actually um, I broke my foot and I sprained my ankle and I popped a ligament. And so I, I had reached a state of depression because I was really sad. I was crying. I wanted to cry every day. I didn't cry every day, but it was it, after two and a half years or so, it was finally hitting me. Uh, I don't think it really, like, I remember thinking somewhere in the second year going, you know, I haven't really cried that Jim has Alzheimer's and that seems like something I should do. But about at the two and a half year mark or three year part, it was like I was there. I was ready to cry every single day. That's all I wanted to do is to cry. And um, and I was feeling sorry for myself and having a pity party and, and just, you know, all of it. You know, I'm in this chair. I have to have surgery. <laughs> and uh, and then we, we had this introduction to this new technology that sort of changed our lives. So you found this new technology that really saved your lives and things are getting better. You know, you started with saying, you know, the doctor is actually, you know, like reversing it, figuring things out. Um, you're now part, you know, of it's part of your life as well and the job and everything. So what, you know, is day to day life like now for for you and your husband? So I would say, you know, the things that got better uh, have stayed better. So he's not napping anymore. Um, he's not falling asleep at seven o'clock. He's He's chattier. Um, he's so much more engaged in conversation. He's much more with it. He's replying appropriately. He's not asking me the same question over and over again. And he's, 
um, the thing that I lost that was probably the most heartbreaking was he wasn't even trying to be funny anymore. And that's the core of his personality. And he's, he is funny and he's flirty. Um, you know, he is, his, his deep sleep has improved. He's whistling again, which he had not been able to do. He's even regained a sense of smell, which he lost 15 years ago. So day to day, that's not to say that he, he still has Alzheimer's. Uh, he's still, uh, sort of like four or five years old in a lot of ways. So, you know, these things that have improved have made a huge difference in that I have my husband back, but he is not, um, he's not by any means cured. Perhaps the best part is that my depression is lifted as a result of this technology. And I am feeling like I am a better care provider, more patient, um, and happier and able to steep in gratitude for the fact that I did have this amazing, I do have this amazing love that many never finds and that, um, I understand how precious and rare it is at this point in my life. And, and I'm able to really appreciate it. So day-to-day living is, is still very hard. You know, he relies on me for everything and, um, and some days he's with me and other days he's two decades or three decades or four decades, uh, ago and thinking he's in the Navy and he's in a squadron. And, you know, uh, last night he said, hmm, I would really like to work with you. I really like how you work and I would like to work with you. And I have some ideas around that. And I'm like, really, what, what is that? And he'd say, well, you know, I think we should do a little bit of this and a little of that and move this from here to there. And, and so he kind of talks in like nonsense words, but he's very adamant about wanting to do this. And so, you know, I just sort of said, that sounds great. Well, let's, let's talk about that tomorrow and come up with a plan. It was sort of end of day and at the end of day, it gets a little bit worse than earlier in the day. Um, and I'm like, that sounds great. We'll, we'll definitely, um, definitely talk about that tomorrow. And he's like, that'd be great. Okay, good. So, you know, he's still, um, he's so cute. Uh, and he's so sweet and he is still at his heart, the nicest human. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what day to day is like. Yeah. And to hear that things are better for you, um, I think is really great. It can be very hard as a caregiver. Um, you know, it's kind of the unspoken part of when someone's going through any sort of health challenge. So I appreciate, you know, you sharing that. Do you want to share a little bit just about this technology here before we start to wrap things up? Yeah, people can reach out to me at my website, IamReverseAging.com, and they can really kind of look into it. It's it's photobiomodulation. It's a, a small quarter size patch that reflects your light back into you at a specific wavelength that elevates copper peptide. And there's a ton of studies, 50 years of studying on uh, copper peptide. If you Google it in PubMed, you can see all the benefits that include everything from improving the heart to improving cancer, um, fighting cancer, resetting genes, um, amazing things for curing, all sorts of things. There's nothing, because of the fact that it elevates and activates stem cells, I don't know that there's anything that it can't improve. But the, uh, the technology, if you think about how you, when you go out in the sun, your, your, the light comes on you and you make vitamin D, you know, most people understand that. And most people also understand that, uh, it also makes melanin. So we have a chemical response to light. We have people doing infrared sauna for light therapy or blue light therapy or all sorts of light therapy. Light therapy has been around 5,000 years. So what this, uh, what this pouch is doing is it's just reflecting that back 
into you at that very specific wavelength. And, and as a result of that, it's resetting genes. And um, what I love is there's even like a, there's a 2019 brain study and I got to see this in action, but the brain study shows EEGs, you know, in three different sessions before, middle and after. And you can actually go on the website and you can Google that study, but you can see the things it does around improving the cell and nerve regeneration and balancing the brain and improving coherence and improving the nervous system and lowering anxiety and decreasing brain inflammation and improving memory focus and cognitive brain function, all of these things. Um, and I got to watch that happen, but I also got to experience it myself. And so people find that they're not having to take their ADHD medicine anymore after as, as early as 15 days. Um, they're not having to take their antidepressants. And I understand that. And they're not having to take any kind of, um, you know, PTSD medicines, all sorts of amazing suicidal people are finding their way into the light. Um, and then there's another study on the heart. And this is, I think, what helped me. I have POTS or have been diagnosed with POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia. And that causes um, not enough blood to get to the brain. And so I, I would pass out. Every time I'd stand up, I'd have to hold on and just steady myself for a little bit until I get going. And after, you know, I was grounded for two weeks at one point in the Navy, not able to drive and not able to work while they tried to figure out what was wrong with me. And ultimately they said, you have really low blood pressure and that's called this POTS and there's really nothing we can do about it, but we can give you this drug that'll raise your blood pressure. And I was like, I really don't want to take a drug that raises my blood pressure. Is there any alternative? But I found in the last few years, I've kind of had to take that drug and, uh, and I'm not having to take that drug anymore because there's the study that was done where just six weeks of wearing this X39 patch and your cardiovascular system starts functioning as if it's eight weeks younger. So I, I found that I'm just not passing out anymore. And I, I appreciate that there's so much, um, that's so much that can be done with that. And, and what, what frustrates me, Sarah, is that I didn't know about this two years ago. And I did a lot of research. And when I find out that, you know, 300 Olympic athletes wore LifeWave patches in 2008, I'm like, well, wh why didn't I know about it? When I find out Ivory Sully saying Tom Brady is wearing the patches, I'm like, well, where, where were these people talking about it? You know, I understand Suzanne Summers has six six out of 26 books, she actually talks about them, but I didn't know that. And um, so I, I think that part of why I'm willing to be vulnerable and transparent and go on a podcast and even talk about my story, um, it's not an easy thing for me. I was the person that literally only posted on Facebook when one daughter graduated from the Naval Academy and the other daughter graduated from the Air Force Academy three years later. And if you looked, that would be all you would see in those years. People just thought I fell off the face of the earth. Um, but I, I, uh, I feel like if somebody would have, somebody I know or somebody that I trust or somebody that was credible would have put it out there, I would have jumped all over it because I didn't have anything to lose. And, and, you know, there's even a money back guarantee and it's not expensive where I spent $10,000 for an IV in, in Mexico. These are $99 for a one month supply. Um, and, and in 24 hours, it's resetting 3000 to 4,000 of your genes to a healthier state. So um, that's a little bit. And they, and they, you know, I think the other thing I didn't know is that stem cells decline. So when you're 30, uh, half of them are dormant. And when you're 60, they're almost all dormant. And I didn't know that. I just thought our stem cells kind of were in there working for us, but they're, they're really not. So the ability to activate them, uh, through elevation of your GHKCU is huge. And I also found out two of my doctors are on these. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? Uh, there's a 40-year anesthesiologist who said, this is the most significant medical breakthrough in my lifetime. 
okay, why isn't it plastered on the front page of the newspaper and on every media show is what I want to know because the, the stories that I could tell you about not just our recovery and our improvement, but my sister, my family, I mean, they're just the, the woman, that, a friend of ours that had Parkinson's and tremors and she was five who stopped tremoring after three weeks. There's just endless stories, kids with autism getting remarkably improved. And I, and I just don't, I don't get it except that much, much of the normal media is really overseen and controlled, I think, by big pharma owners. <laughs> like, I think they're kind of in bed and big pharma and government are in bed. And I just, I think that the word doesn't get out. So, um, yeah, I, you know, anybody who wants to talk some more about that, I am available to be reached in my website and I can even have a consultation with a doctor that I work closely with, uh, that can help people and answer questions and, uh, and you can even buy the patches there. You can dig into the science. You can see all the 90 clinical studies. You can read the patents yourself. Um, you can listen to testimonials and doctors describing things uh, better, way better than I do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate, you know, your vulnerability and, you know, and sharing your story, you know, wanting to get the word out there about all things you're passionate about and what has helped you. Um, so I appreciate you, you know, sharing that vulnerability. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So we'll see if you have an answer for this question. If not, I'll ask you a different one. But my question for <laughs> you is, do you have any nicknames? You know, I I was called Dar uh, by my ex-husbands. And so I hate that nickname. So no, not that I like. <laughs> because of Darlene. It was just short. And, uh, and so anytime anybody ever does that, I'm like, well, let's, let's not do that. <laughs> My husband has a cool one though. Um, his call sign was Mean Jim. Mean Jim Green from Mean Joe Green uh, because he was in this great football game and, and they, you know, it was the last play. And if they won, they won the whole weekend off for everybody. And it was, it was this big tournament final and, and he blocked this guy and it, the guy ended up with his tooth in my husband's cheek. And so it was dripping down and they, and they took this kind of goofy shot of him like smiling and it ended up on the front page of the newspaper. But they, so everybody in the wardroom pinned up the newspaper and said, we've got to come up with a call sign for him on this. And because it was football, because of the last being green and, and Jim was so close to Joe. So he became mean Jim, mean Jim green instead of mean Joe green. All right, that brings this episode to a close. So as Darlene mentioned, her website, IamReverseAging.com, that will be in the description if you'd like to connect with her and reach out, you know, to share a bit about your story so she can help connect with you. Um, and of course, if you would like to connect with our podcast, our website is in the description as always. That brings you to all of our past episodes, past resources, contact, whatever good information we've got. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So if you want to go follow those pages, that support is always appreciated. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast and share your story, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach me. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily to help defray some of the costs of podcasting, that is always appreciated. And there is a link to do with that as well. So thank you so much, Darlene, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Bye.